This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Good morning, Professor Ward Scott here on, um, well, the Ward Scott Files from the podcast studio here at Steve Spurrier Grill. So today as our Dance Alive National Ballet interview with one of our favorite people from the Dance Alive organization. Today, it's Rosemary Diario, whom we're going to meet in just a moment. Mm -hmm. And uh, we want to give thanks, of course, to Melvin Law that supports the show. Uh, Melvin Law won't back down. They're the only uh, official law firm partner of the University of Florida. And, of course, uh, CPSS.net will help you reach out to crime prevention, security systems that uh, supports our show. And then we have the mug shots by Marie Steve McDaniel and all our other sponsors. And we want to give always thanks to our donors who uh, contribute to keep us on our production level of excellence. We hope we bring to you uh, Shoot GTR Range also is one of our sponsors. That's kind of timely and in the news now with uh, some things that are going on with uh, some of the unfortunate issues that are public uh, concerning weapons and people and things of that nature. Uh, if you want a safe place to go practice, uh, Shoot GTR Range is the place to go. Um, we are going to spend the next uh, 25 minutes here with Rosemary Diario, and we're going to get to know her and what her function is and how she got into this really, you know, it's a very disciplined uh, activity here of being a, a, a ballet dancer. It's the highest level of dance, really, and within it is probably the highest level, which I think I know a little bit about, but she can correct me in a moment, <laughs> would be classical dance, which is my favorite. Uh, classical dance has really begun in Europe, if you want to think about where its origins are, because that was an older society. And uh, we're just picking this up here in America, which is relatively a young society given the classical arts. And um, But Rosemary is one of our homegrown dancers uh, right down the road in Ocala. Mm -hmm. I'm going to let her tell you a little bit more about that. But she dances with people from Brazil and uh, once upon a time Ukraine and Russia and mm -hmm places like that, and I'll let her talk about it, what that has meant to her. So um, today, if um, you uh, have any questions, I'll take a look in the chat room. Otherwise, sit back and enjoy our guest today, Rosemary Diario. <laughs> Rosemary, did I get most of that right? Yes, yes, you did. Uh, well, you know, where shall we start? I think it's interesting that as a Ocala girl, lady, female, uh, whatever the right <laughs> political terminology is, dancer uh you're in with the world's greatest yeah yeah i really am it's it's amazing to be in the company with people who are from so many different backgrounds because um in each area you're trained a different way so you russia you train the Vaganova russian way you're in brazil you're trained that way in cuba you cuban method and each of the dancers bring their training to the company and in class you get to learn from them not just by watching but some of the more seasoned dancers, they'll give you feedback. And that is amazing to see, too. And they all got different strengths, too, because each training um, gives you different strengths. So uh, for me, I've been able to learn a lot from just the other dancers and what they bring. 
I don't want to be impolite and ask age, but uh, <laughs> you don't have any wrinkles. Let's put it that okay. way. So you're you're young. <laughs> yeah, I'm 21. I'm 21. 21. And when mm-hmm. did you start dancing? I started when I was eight um, in Ocala at Mary Ellen School of Dance. It was just what I, led you to it. I mean, just okay. So to be honest, I was. My mom asked me one day. She walked into the kitchen. She was like. Do you want to take ballet with your friend Becky? And I was like, <laughs> ballet. I was, I was like taking it back. I was like, sure, I guess I'll try. And then we went in, and I went in like with like jeans and my hair in a ponytail, and it was, it was not the correct apparel at all. But it was so much fun actually. And then from then on, like I knew I wanted, I wanted to dance. You knew from then, right? Yeah, I was about thirteen, and I think that's when I realized like this can be a profession. I didn't know it could be, but. So that's when I decided I wanted to dance. <laughs> so you started dancing in uh, in Ocala, mm-hmm. where you're from. Yeah. And then, how did you discover, or were you discovered? How'd that work? Uh, into Pofall? Pofall. Yeah, I, it was actually my teacher, Lisa Hamilton. Um, she used to dance with Dance Alive, and she's like, oh, you got to go to Gainesville, to Pofall. And there was another student who was going there as well. And so I went up. And it was a completely different world. <laughs> How old were you then? I was 12. 12. 12. So yeah. you came to Popol at age 12. Yes. Yeah, I was about 12. And Miss Tuttle, <laughs> her classes were insane. <laughs> Nothing like I've ever experienced before. I had absolutely no idea what was going on. But it was absolutely terrifying at first. But then um, it started being really fun because it was so challenging. And I, I mean, I loved it. <laughs> so... Yeah. So, so you were in there then with a, quite a mix of professional dancers from all over the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I didn't actually start dancing with the company in their like performances or Nutcracker until I was about thirteen because I didn't even, to be honest, I didn't even know there was a company associated with Pofall, and I started learning more and more about it. And then sometimes the professionals would take class with us. And I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so, yeah, that's how pretty much how I learned about Dance Alive. Well, you were talking a moment ago about these different cultures, which is the first I've heard expressed quite that way, mm-hmm. that there's a Cuban form, there's this, that, one, another. Can you talk about those a little bit more and what's different and similar? Uh, yeah. So just basically the classwork and the training. So like Cuban method, they'll do different arms, they'll call, and then Vaganova, they'll call them different positions, for instance. This is fifth. But um, in Vaganova, it's third. So, and they'll have different terminology and Vaganova's trained a very slow and like meticulously, very attention to detail. And then like Cuban method's very strong. Like they, I've taken classes from Jesse Dominguez and she's clapping and yelling and uh, everything's super high energy. And um, it's just a very different feel than more of a Vaganova where it's like um, very, very detailed oriented. It's it's difficult to describe, but there are there are differences, and it's good to get both. It's just a very different vibe. You know, well, you're really, from what I can tell from interviewing a lot of the dancers over mm-hmm. time who have been doing the Dance Live National Ballet Thursday, is you're at the beginning of the uh, career. Yeah. And <laughs> you probably, now the oldest at the career I know is Andy Valadon. Oh, my gosh, yeah. yeah he's who's great. 50, right? Yes. And is a miracle, all the things he's had worked on, his mm-hmm. knees and all that, and never deters him. I know. And I actually met the gentleman from China or Japan. Who Mr. Chu. Mr. <laughs> Chu, who was in his 60s, right? Yeah. Real nice fellow. Who, still dancing mm-hmm. in his 60s. Yeah. One of my favorite memories of Mr. Chu is um, 
he was warming up for class and he goes into the lobby and between there's you know the two benches like in the lobby there's like a little corner and he's doing a handstand in between the doing two a handstand <laughs> and he's 60 some years old he's doing a handstand yeah, yeah. oh my, my golly I'd, I'd break my neck if i did that <laughs> wow yeah. that's that's the people he's what amazing. we're talking about here really is uh, we've heard me you've heard me say this before it's probably not my line but it's where art and athletics intersect uh, you've got to be a tremendous athlete a part gymnast um, yeah. for sure right yeah. uh, skydiver you name it yeah all those things wrapped up and then and you've got to interpret the choreography yeah uh, let's talk about that for a minute because I keep hearing uh, there's a role for a choreographer how does that interact with the physical nature of the dance um so you ask like is when the choreographer choreographs something they want to choose the right person or like well you have to adapt do you not to yes. that choreography yes definitely and sometimes it is uncomfortable because um you like technicality might be really difficult to master but it's also the artistry that the choreographer wants and trying to um listen to their corrections and understanding what they're looking for, what the story they want to be told. Um, that is one of the things that's most difficult for me, I think, is developing that artistry and interpreting like the character that you're playing, kind of. Well, somebody I learned has got a real good uh, kind of, uh, what can I say, track record of doing this is uh, Carla Moncio. Oh, yes, yes. Because I've learned that with her face, Mm-hmm. And what she expresses, she can convey much of the story. Yes, she's very expressive in her face, and her features are so intense, too. She's got that jet black hair, her cheekbones. You know, she can do so much with her face. And um, one of the things I admire about her a lot is not only her strength, but she has the ability to play these very young like characters, like kind of um, uh, like blissful and just... Um, carefree kind of like in in phantom last year she was christine and in the beginning she's a very carefree like young individual she did that very very well because of her and her facial expressions her body yes but she has a unique ability to use her face in expressing that that's one of the first thing i noticed and if you don't know that's how i got involved with Dancing with the Stars. You, I don't know if you were around. Did you heard this story? But I, got I don't think so. I'm, I'm excited well, to hear unfortunately it. or fortunately, uh, they found me in the public world, and I thought nobody knew about me. But uh, they say, "Would you like to be in uh, Dancing with the Stars?" Our version here locally, of course, of it to fundraiser for uh, Dance Alive National Ballet. So mm-hmm. the deal was that uh, Kim said, "I'll get you a pretty girl for a partner." <laughs> you know, so you know that that went a long way. Mm-hmm. You know, and it turned out to be Carla Mancio. <laughs> so, um, you know, we practiced and had a lot of fun. I learned right away. Uh, I didn't know my left foot from my right. I mean, I, you know, you think you're a dancer because you go to the clubs or something, you know. But that's not what we're talking about. So uh, the discipline of interacting with a partner, mm-hmm. you know, that took a lot of practice. And, mm-hmm. you know, to be synchronized and appear as if you're yeah. one movement together. Yeah. Uh, we worked on that. And um, that sort of got me. That sort of got me involved in Dance Alive National Ballet. And then another uh, story that you may not be aware of is my mother was a dancer. Oh, really? And she lived yeah. to be 107 and a half. Oh, my gosh. And, and, and um, you know, I don't know how to say this politely, but my, at that age, my mother's legs were still dancer's legs. <laughs> I mean, they really were. I mean, she yeah. 
And when she was 100, I took her to dance a live national ballet. And she danced with one of the dance instructors to You Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog by Elvis Presley. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And then I'm going to tell you a secret. She came back and said, you know, he's not that, he's not that good. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And that's my mother. I mean, that's, wow. that's I mean, because you got to, she had high standards. You yeah, better I darn sure so. know what you're doing to go dance with me, so. you know. And, of course, you know, I said, mother, that's not polite. Don't say that. Yeah. She whispered it to me anyway. Oh my so gosh. I did bring her when she was 100 years old to the, to the activity wow. she danced and um, you know, that was a, that was a big deal then. Of course it is yeah. a big deal. So would you say that dance kept her, kept her young, you know, not just physicality, but the, I don't know, being able to, when you're young to, I don't know, pretend still kind of. In well, the yeah, there's many things. Well, everybody's tried to analyze what has kept her longevity from <laughs> genes to luck to the whole thing. But I mm -hmm. think it was the uh, discipline. Yeah. I think what, what really, she carried and conveyed to us as children was discipline. Mm. Um, discipline, ironically, a lot of people think it may restrain you, but it actually frees you. Yeah, yeah. If you're not disciplined, you don't have freedom. Mm -hmm. And this is something people don't understand. People think freedom is just doing anything you want to do. No, it's not. It's no. doing something that gives you choices that you exactly. can exercise intelligently. Mm -hmm. Would you agree? I would, I would agree. And you learn it from dance. Yeah. Do you not? Give, can yes. you give me an example of that in dance? Because I'm um, just. I mean, you, first of all, you have you show up and you show up on time, and you show up ready to go and to learn. And if the teacher asks you to do something, you do it, and you do it enthusiastically. Because if you don't, you yourself, it's a choice. You either do it and you learn and you'll improve. And if you don't do it, you won't learn and you won't improve. So it's. It's basically, it's all up to you. You know, it is, it is a choice to apply yourself, and then you'll get better. But if you don't, you will suffer the consequences. And you, I, you have the freedom to make that choice. Um, but, it, of course, you want to apply yourself. You want to learn. You want to be the best you can. So that's why I believe a lot of dancers will work hard when they're in class. And then when you don't have dancers who don't work hard, they don't make it. And it's their choice. And, and another thing I'm sure you, you, you encounter, and a lot of people break down if they fail, mm -hmm. but failing is part of the learning. Yeah. yeah. Gosh, every day in class and you're falling over and just a double, yeah. double pirouette. Yeah. You don't let but that deter you. No, no. It is frustrating because sometimes it'll happen for a week. You just have a bad turning week. You're like, what am I doing wrong? But I'm, you just keep going. And you, I, I've gotten to the point where I ask my classmates for feedback as well. And then we'll start correcting each other, and like together we start figuring it out. <laughs> so there's no room for uh, um, uh, uh, feelings getting hurt. <laughs> no, that's the one thing. Um, Pofal and Dance Alive and Aristotle have taught me is thick skin, and because <laughs> they're just trying to help you and help you. If you came in into a, one of those sessions where you're listening to the coach or the teacher, let's. Kim's probably one of the ones, of course. Mm -hmm. You would think that everybody in there might be scared to death, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Fear, so frightened about doing the wrong thing. Yeah. But actually, that's what it's all about. Yeah, yeah. And if you want the great performance, if you want true. the great final product, you've got to go through that. Yeah. A lot of teachers and choreographers will say, do too much, and then I will tell you what's too much. So basically, do your 1,001%. And then I'll tell you, okay, back off a little bit, whether it's um, 
artistry or just energy or in general. So, Well, I was yeah. a coach for a lot, one part of my life, and we had a saying, do something even if it's wrong. Mm-hmm. In other words, the worst thing you can do is do nothing. Yes. <laughs> and Or be a shrinking, what we call a shrinking violet. You know, pull away from it and yeah. go in a corner and, you know, break down or something. Yeah. Now, that's not going to cut it. No. You know, everybody's got to get over that. So, you know, we had a saying, do something even if it's wrong. Mm-hmm. And then we would say, if it's wrong, we'll cover you. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. we'll, um, you, might, you might hear us being really demanding about the fact that you did something wrong, mm-hmm. but we're going to come back. And then you measure, really, how quickly one corrects it. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole deal. Mm-hmm. How quickly is it corrected? Yeah. Because that means the person cares. That means the person has accepted this as a part of the mm-hmm. learning experience. Yeah. And, and you're actively actively thinking about what went wrong, and you're trying to make a change, and you're trying to make it better. Yeah. 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 And there's a lot of trust involved there, and that you have to you have to yeah. trust the the demands of the person who mm-hmm. pointed out you did something wrong. Mm, yes, that's and, true. Um, and the other thing you have to trust too is that. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong here, but if you were selected to begin with, mm-hmm. your coach or your teacher or your boss, let's put it in white, saw something in you. Mm-hmm. Saw something in you that was worth their time yeah. to reach out and help you become what you could become. Mm-hmm. Or, you wouldn't, or you wouldn't have been selected. You wouldn't that's, be there. This, that's true. That's, yeah. And I think people are selected for different reasons as well. Some people might be selected for... Um, their technicality, others for their just love of dance. and But I would agree with that, yes. Yeah, and that's something that you always have to keep in mind, too, is that um, it's, if they don't care about me messing up, mm-hmm. then they don't think much of me. Mm. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. They're going to move on. Yeah. They're yeah. going to move on mm-hmm. uh, because there's not, you know, that person isn't upset by being doesn't really want to turn it around. Yeah. So, so I, that's, you asked me what came through with my mother. That, that was coming through for my mother. That was the world she came up in. Mm-hmm. And you have to remember, too, that her generation at 107 and a half mm-hmm. came through the Depression in this country. Mm-hmm. And um, th- that really built character in them, I'm mm-hmm. telling you. Um, they went through something that is um, uh, uh, Never left them. Yeah, never left yeah. them. Uh, down to the down to the fact that if we walked out of a room in the house and left the light on in that room, yeah. my mother would say, "Turn that light out." Yeah, you're not in that room. Turn that light out. Yeah, and it was a constant refrain. I mean, constant. Mm-hmm. And you know, don't hold the refrigerator door open. Yeah. You know, if you're going to look in the refrigerator, close the door. You know, don't stand there and stare because the cold air is getting out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know these little things, yeah. and so. You know, it never was difficult for me to, some people say, be picked on, but it's not picked on. It's being mm-hmm. picky to help you, it, it, you know, get tough about that particular yeah. situation. Mm-hmm. So that's what I like so much when I go into the dance studio and watch everybody in there. Because share with the listeners um, uh, how much stretching, just for example, you <laughs> do every day. Oh, gosh. Okay. So I, I, that's like one of the first things I do in the morning. I do just, like gentle morning stretches and then and then I'll go through my warm-up routine which is not only exercises but it's also stretching and then when I get to the studio I'll do some more stretching so you're doing that at home when you get up oh yeah yeah this is before I even get to the studio I'll do some stretching and then my warm-up and then I'll stretch again which is a little bit more intense like splits and um 
like stuff I'll even use the wall and I'll put my leg up on the wall and try to do a little bit of over splits and and then um, then when I get to the studio I stretch again <laughs> before class so I'm just all loosened up and ready to go and then after class is actually one of the best times to stretch is your body is all warm and you can really stretch your muscles so then I might do a little bit of stretching in between then and then rehearsals and um, if it's a weekend I get very stiff over the weekend, so Saturday, yeah, I'll, you do, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll like to, I'll like to do some stretching on Saturday, and then maybe like Sunday evening, just so I don't come back Monday. Like, and how <laughs> long a session when you say you stretch? What, what is a session for stretching um, at home? Just at home. At home, let's see. It's probably like thirty minutes. Thirty minutes. Yeah, thirty minutes. Carla used yeah. to always tell me that I should stretch. I said, <laughs> "Yeah, Carla, okay." She said, "Just ten minutes a day, Ward." Just ten minutes a day, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't take too long. I. I actually. I might take longer because I find it relaxing. Yeah, it is. Like I like to sit outside in the morning and do my stretches there and feel a little well, more relaxed. You know, uh, something in my generation, maybe my, I never got into yoga, which I should have done. <laughs> you know, great. something yes. along those lines. You know, yeah. the tra- the calmness that it brings over you mm-hmm. and the, all that kind the of connecting business. to your breath and, and <laughs> all the breathing and things. Yeah. You know, the serenity, uh, you know, I came out of the macho world of uh, lift more weight, run faster, you yeah. know, run through the wall, you know, uh, yes. don't claim you're ever hurt and uh, don't complain. And, yeah. and uh, but, you know, I tell you where I learned to really the opposite was when I ran track and I learned that, by golly, you're going to run track, you better spend a lot of time stretching. Yeah. And particularly the hamstring and, and mm-hmm. the glutes because... It's all back in the back there in the little yeah. back. Yeah, right. Um, very tight. So I learned a lot from the sprinters, for example, mm-hmm. these guys who could fly. Um, I asked them uh, how often they, they ran all out. They said, never except in a race. Oh, my gosh. Really? Because we only have so many in our body. Oh, my gosh. That's the way they look at it, Rosemary. Oh, my gosh. We only have so many all outs in our body. Yeah. So they learned to run almost all out, mm-hmm. and when they train, they break up the race into parts. Oh, interesting. And they'll emphasize the start, uh-huh. or the, you know, the, but they don't ever put it all together okay. because, wow. you know, you only got a couple of times, and that builds the intensity and the pressure. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, now's the time I'm going to put it all together. And there's a real art to that. And there's another thing that's a real art is um, when to rest. Oh, yeah. You can overtrain. Yeah. I don't know if it's true of ballet, but it sure is true. It, yeah, I would say it's it's true. Um, overdoing it has been something I've been Well, I know that some people have injuries at the, at the studio. Yeah, yeah. Probably overtraining, right? Yes. And when, especially um, during Nutcracker season, I'm trying to learn not to overdo it. So <laughs> if I know I have a bunch of shows coming up, maybe I should not take another evening class just because... I should take this time, rest, maybe stretch, <laughs> or not. But that's something I'm learning because I have also um, getting over injuries and. Well, that's a difficult thing to learn, and yeah. I found it to be so. Uh, what isn't? When are you overtraining? And I have a story that I tell. I, I used to train with a guy. Um, of course, he didn't. Who ran? Who held the rec- mile record? Mm-hmm. Um, he ran a ridiculously fast mile. Wow. Um, a good friend of mine, and, and um, um, I would go out and sort of tag along with him. He would run, a, in those days it was yards, mm-hmm. he would run a 440, uh, run 20 of them. 
Oh my gosh. And you want a 220 jog interval in between. Oh my now gosh. Now the tough thing is a 220 jog interval where you relax, mm -hmm. but you're on your toes. Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, That's what kills you. Yeah. Because you're on your toes. And then you pick it up. And he would tie jingle bells to his shoestrings. Oh, my gosh. To hear the ting, 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 ting. And then he knew about what his pace was. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. He was really, he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Wow. <laughs> Here's the problem with him. Good friend of mine. Mm -hmm. I remember one night we were at the track and. He says, well, enjoyed it. And I said, well, thanks for letting me tag along, Dick. I mean, he'd run 20 more than I would run, oh you know. Oh, gosh. <laughs> but um, he said, I guess I've done enough. I said, well, I think you probably got it. Well, he says, I don't know. You know, I've got a race sewing. He's my opponent. And I don't know what he's doing. That kind of thing was going through his mind. Mm -hmm. And then he said this to me. I've never forgotten it. I'll go home and run on the street some more while my wife cooks pizza. Because he trained on pizza. Oh, my gosh. Carbohydrate overloads. Yeah, you know, yeah. You burn that energy quickly. Yeah. He developed and did not go to the Olympics because of it, a hip a fracture. Of oh, the my hip, gosh. A, a stress fracture of the hip. Oh, my gosh. That's excellent. And I think he did it himself. Probably. I mean, it's, it's probably a combination of overtraining and then nutrition as well. Like, if you're going to train that hard, you need to have nutrition to support it. Well, I don't know. It's always been on my mind, you know, because I knew him so well. Mm -hmm. He was so promising, looking forward, training for it. Mm -hmm. So to have a good trainer is another thing I think is really, and uh, I know with Kim Tuttle, for example, she's been doing it for 50 years yeah, or so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she, she knows when um, things get too much. Um, she even told me maybe next year, don't take as many evening classes, just lay off them. Because I was running. You'll be a year older lady then. <laughs> no, no, it's happening. It's happening. No, it's fine. No, but I, I understand. Like I just want to do it all and get as strong as I can. But I, but maybe that's not the most effective way. You know, because you know, I used to have a teacher who said, if you can't show up, don't show up. So I mean, if you can't go to class giving it your all, then don't go to class if you don't have the energy to. So that is something I'm trying to apply now. <laughs> I tell you, so we're getting down to the bottom of the hour, but uh, I could spend the whole hour with you because you're, you're so delightful and <laughs> oh, you. fresh and, and, and young in this whole world that you're entering <laughs> and enjoying every bit of it and <laughs> teaching us a lot about what it takes to be successful, really. First of mm -hmm. all, I suppose you have to like what you're doing. Oh, my gosh, I love it. Yeah, you have to I have a passion it. for what you're doing. Then mm -hmm. you have to be able to accept the training and the criticism mm -hmm. and the failures and, the, and, yes. the, and all that and then learn from the others yes <laughs> that are older than you in, in yeah, the, you know. yeah. And, and dance life is a perfect place to do it too mm -hmm. well you know I think the whole culture needs a lot of more of that learning from the elders mm -hmm. um, this one thing that happens to you when you get old you've made a lot of mistakes okay <laughs> yeah. and uh, what you try to do is avoid uh, the, the young person you're talking to from making the same ones you mm -hmm. know but probably it won't happen because they'll make their own set. Yeah. You know, because I don't know anybody goes through the world without making, making some, mistakes, some mistakes, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, it's a question of whether you have a good support system when you make them and mm -hmm. um, people are willing to invest time and in you and all mm -hmm. that and work with you. So yeah. uh, we've been talking with Rosemary Diario, who is, how long have you been with this um, as a professional with the uh, For It's my fourth year. 
Is it your fourth year? Yeah, I joined so in 2019. You, yeah. you joined when you were 19. This, 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 uh, 18, but it was 2019. So, so you started <laughs> dancing with the the the, 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 the Dance the, Live National the Ballet. The company. The at, company. At 2019, yes. In 2019. Mm-hmm. And how old were you? I was 18. 18. Mm-hmm. I met one other dancer that might have been one year li- younger than you. I for, oh, man, I'm trying to remember her name. She was from Turkey. Oh, Bouzet. Booty, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I think she was, the story she told me, and I'll share it before we take our break, is that she was kind of a phenom in Europe, mm-hmm. and she'd been to all the great teachers. Mm-hmm. And they said to her, you're able to go out into the world now, but we have, a, we have one reservation. You're so young. Mm, yeah. You know, and dance-wise, you're as good as anything we've got in Europe, but... Mm-hmm. And she said she had to deal with that. She said, wow. I'm going to go out, and I'll learn how to deal with it. And she did. Wow. I think she thing. came to the Pofal, if I remember, when she was 17. Wow. I didn't know she was that young because I remember seeing her in rehearsals. I was. She might have been somewhere she showed. Maybe not at us, but mm-hmm. she was dancing at 17. Yeah. And had been sort of kicked out of the nest in Europe uh, wow. pretty early to go f- seek her fortune. Wow. And... Um, Bousset was her name. Mm-hmm. Bousset, yeah. Mm-hmm. And we interviewed her, and, and I don't know where she is now. I know she's dancing someplace. Yes, yeah, she is. Yeah. 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 So, been talking to Rosemary Diario, and it's been a delight for you to stop by with us. Where are you going now? Off to dance, I'm sure. Uh, yes, actually. <laughs> going off to dance and practice yeah. now. Do you, and I understand you're helping some with marketing? Uh, yes, I did my internship with Dance Live. So, um, I was working a little bit with Laura Vickery, who is the marketing director. That was really cool. I got to help her with her research for her marketing plan. Well, that's really neat. I tell you, it's really a pleasure to get to know you. (laughs) And I appreciate you stopping by. And um, you're invited back anytime you want to come. Thank you. (laughs) I I talked with Kim, and Kim says, Who would you like to talk to? And we came up with you. So I'll tell Kim, anytime you want to send Rose, we will. Because I don't even think we've scratched the surface with what uh, (laughs) your story is really pretty interesting. So thank you. um, We'll take a break now on the Ward Scott Files. We'll be back in a little bit. Uh, production of Sigmund back in, and we'll take our time taking our break. So let Rosemary clear out and get to doing her job <laughs> uh, that uh, today of stretching and more stretching yes. and then more dancing and more mm-hmm. dancing. So we'll be right back on the Ward Scott Files in just a moment. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Maurice T. McDaniel, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, RR Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, 
you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com, and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Wardscott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All bees poop. I'm a warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Now for the weather brought to you by Lewis Oil. All right, welcome back to Ward Scott Files. We are here in the Steve Spurrier Podcast Studio, and I've got to get myself situated here to where I, I think I'm there. I'm looking at the camera, and I'm looking at myself. There's, you know, a little picture off to the left. Um, I want to bring you a little bit of the weather, thanks to uh, Lewis Oil, who is uh, helping us with the show and sponsoring us, and that's a great help. Uh, well, I think the news that you've been hearing about the weather is pretty accurate, and that is, is uh, pretty warm. It's even going to be hot here, as I understand it, up in the 95s, and a lot of humidity. And, of course, we've had what I call a thunder boomers. I mean, we had some real storms yesterday at Windy Hill Farm. We had the lightning cracking, which is always kind of an iffy deal because you've got livestock and you hope you're, they're not under a tree where uh, Mother Nature finds a, a lightning, a convenient place to hit. Uh, we haven't had that happen, knock on wood. But people have, and you may have heard about the soldiers uh, that were struck by lightning, one of whom died, I think it was in one of the, um, North Carolina, somewhere like that. Um, it, is, it is a treacherous situation, this lightning. It does strange things. It jumps all over the place, and uh, just because it hits somewhere doesn't mean that's where it ends up, uh, what it ends up affecting. So um, we, got a, we got a heat wave, really, and we even got it in the northeastern United States. We've had... Uh, um, according to AccuWeather, which I'm looking at here, um, a lot, 160 million Americans uh, are going to be experiencing temperatures of 100 degrees or higher. Now, of course, um, Biden has taken an opportunity to politicize this and call it uh, this heat uh, an effect of global warming. Uh, but there are heat advisories uh, all along the East Coast uh, from New York City into Philadelphia. Um, and, you know, they're not really able to handle it as well because they have the pavement and all that concrete and all that business um, heats up and retains it. I'm sure you've walked down if you haven't. It's like walking through canyons when you go to New York. You're among them between these buildings, and uh, there's very little uh, you can do. They warm up, and they don't cool down that easily. So the high temperatures all are all even going to hit up into Boston. Uh, I have been out there in Boston, and uh, there, there, when the temperatures before have been over 100 degrees, 
and they suffer for some reason. It's a different hundred degree than it is here. Even someplace like uh, Minnesota, which is habitually cold, as you know, most of the year, uh, is can be hotter in there in the summer than it is here. Um, so there's a lot of factors that contribute to this. Um, and of course, you have the risk of heat-related illnesses. There's the image of the UPS um, uh, driver collapsing at the front door of a delivery he made and that being caught on your camera. Um, there are going to be also the factors that the 100 degrees feels warmer. So the near-record highs really are still yet to come, according to AccuWeather, which is um, due in on Saturday and Sunday. And it will be along a stretch from Virginia Beach up in to north of Boston. Um, the heat wave right now is projected to be the longest in nearly 10 years. The last time New York City uh, strung together seven consecutive days with highs of 90 or greater was a, a July 14th through 20 uh, in 2013. So um, there you are. It seems that that last week or so in, in, in July is the really where it all gets treacherous. Uh, uh, so the um, AccuWeather meteorologists are predicting I have 98 degrees in New York City itself Sunday, and hopefully that will be the peak of the heat wave. And it would be, um, should that um, uh, approach the century mark, it will be the first time for a triple-digit reading in the city since 2012. So um, Philadelphia is going to be hot. D.C. is going to be hot. Um, uh, Dulles, Virginia, Allentown, Pennsylvania, uh, these places like that. And um, it's just something that uh, I guess we're sort of more or less accustomed to it here, but we do have the, the between the two bodies of water. So we do get these storms, and these storms are a way, if you will, of kind of nature letting off pressure. And um, uh, I've welcomed them. Um, yesterday, for example, um, the fellows came by and filled up my uh, supply of propane as I prepared for, of course, the, uh, the farm is run on backup generators um, in case of the storm that shuts the electricity down. We go to backup generators, uh, so we're filled up with, you know, prepared for uh, whatever might be coming. Hopefully it doesn't. That will come as we enter our hurricane season. So I want to thank Lewis Oil Force um, helping us uh, present the weather to you each day. Uh, thank them for supporting the Ward Scott Files. Um, yesterday we had, uh, of course, as you know, let me just take a sip of this water here. Uh, thank you very much. Yesterday we had a, um, a, a, a good interview uh, with a longtime friend, uh, Ted Yoho, who was uh, eight years a congressman in D.C. and term limited himself. He said that... Uh, you know, enough is enough, and I'm going to uh, come back out and enter private life. You never really enter private life once you've been in public life, and um, that's part of the deal. Uh, but he's also got a pretty good perspective on D.C. and the hopelessness of D.C. right now and the administrative state. And there's something that happened yesterday. I think I sent it over to production. I think we can run it, of the AOC um, the situation being fake arrested in the park. Did you happen to pull that? So, yeah, well, the image would be okay. There's also a video in there, but you can put the image up. I'm in the studio, which is very convenient because I can look over production and we can talk. Here's the image of um, 
Uh, and, you know, you can take a look at it. And, um, and she's um, being supposedly led away um, by um, the police. And she supposedly, and, and along with her, was, was uh, um, the, the, part of the squad, I guess they call them. And uh, it turns out, and um, um, this is really political theater, which is um, paid for, of all things, uh, by Mr. Soros. Uh, there's a pack, as I understand it, that um, sort of put the money up to promote this and push this narrative out, um, which is all phony. It wasn't really wasn't any, and it was staged. Now, the Wall Street Journal today has taken a look at this and has made some pretty interesting observations about it. Uh, this is one of the, the better writers. It is um, written by um, Henninger, and Henninger is a pretty clear thinker, and he has noticed that what we really have here in this political theater that we're dealing with is um, a kind of abandonment of the traditional processes by which we govern ourselves i.e. The, the courts and the Constitution and um, the deliberations that are supposedly going on in the Senate and, and the Congress where these matters are ironed out in a statesman way. Um, they're through reasonable debates. And um, that has been abandoned, uh, Henninger thinks, um, by the Democrats. And he points to something that is rather interesting. I don't watch the January 6th. Uh, committee, uh, I call it the Inquisition. I don't watch it because it's unfair. It doesn't have any cross-examination of its witnesses. Uh, it's obviously got an end it wants to accomplish. And in many ways it's accomplishing, and that is to drive the wooden stake into the heart of Trump and get rid of him because he's, he's the first one to come to Washington to actually take on the administrative state, all, uh, which gave birth to all of them. He's the only guy who was not a professional politician to be the president in a long, maybe ever. I've forgotten. I've got that article somewhere in the Midnight Auto Yard. But he, he was not the, your usual cat, okay? And they did not like that. Uh, uh, by comparison, Biden is one of those guys who has been raised, nurtured, and profited from uh, just hanging around D.C. and being in what is called the administrative state which later became known as the deep state. And he has been, you know, this and that, and he's changed his opinions when it was proper for him to change his opinions. There's no consistency in him. He is what you look at as a pure politician. And since the cupboard was so bare uh, in the Democrat Party, they put him up, but they put him up for another reason, as he was an extension of Obama. And um, Mr. Yoho said yesterday uh, something that's very true and is controversial to have been said by uh, a Republican, particularly, you know, Ted Yoho, who's a conservative fellow, said that Obama changed America more than anybody. And he did. He set out by saying, I'm going to change America. And he has changed America. So Henninger has gone through, and, you know, Obama was a street organizer. He was a community organizer. He took his activities to the street and taught people how to do that. And Mr. Henninger has noticed that ever since the Floyd protests, um, the Democrat Party has seen that that street activism works. It gets Chauvin a, a life conviction or 19 
a long time in, in the jug. So that now Mr. Henninger offers the observation that the Democrat Party's uh, political model has moved away from traditional legislative politics, which was the point that Ted Ojo was making yesterday, and has moved toward the uncompromising, this is a quote from Henninger, the uncompromising theatrical strategies of activists in the streets. And that has become the modus operandi. For example, when uh, the Supreme Court made its ruling, of course, about abortion, all the way up to the Oval Office, Biden advocates should go to the streets. Uh, when Matchin, who is from a fossil fuel state, obviously he owes his loyalty to those who put him in office, questions the climate control agenda of the progressive left who don't have a darn thing to do with the economic necessities of the place from uh, uh, which Manchin comes, uh, why he is um, picketed just like everyone else, and um, he is, um, in high, exaggerated terms, um, uh, questioned about whether or not he wants to help save the planet. Uh, Manchin's trying to save the people who put him in office in Virginia, West Virginia. Um, that their, their whole thing has been fossil fuel. Um, for him to say, well, yeah, I'm going to abandon those of you who put me in office, um, and I'll just climb on this, this whole uh, save the planet trip, he's not going to do it. Now, let me offer a, a suggestion to you. I think if it were Biden, he would do it. He's, sh he's shown that all through his political, quote-unquote, career, that he was willing to do that. He was willing to climb on the leaf where the other comedians were and change the same color as they were. So if the leaf was green, if the leaf were green, that is a subjunctive mood. If the leaf were green, contrary to fact, and um, the chameleons crawled on it and they had been brown when they crawled on it, they turned green. Uh, I think that still happens. A little kid, I used to watch it anyway. Uh, then he would crawl up there and turn to green too, even though he really was brown. So it, it doesn't matter to him. It's whatever needs to be done. It's expediency. And since the process of going through the Senate and the Congress and the courts is a very deliberatively slow and give-and-take process, uh, the, the changing of the color, if you will, isn't fast enough for the new Democratic model. So um, they have abandoned that whole principle on which uh, – the country was uh, set up to operate and have gone to the streets. And here are some quotes that um, uh, Mr. Henninger has pointed out um, that uh, are um, exaggerations, of course, or uh, uh, hyperboles, as we say in, in, the, in the writing world. So um, former White Obama White House counselor John Podesta, he wrote Senator Manchin and said that he had, Senator Manchin had doomed humanity, doomed humanity, if you will. Um, uh, the new unbalanced constitutional system that the Democrat model is now using as a name is called the beast mode, M-O-D-E, and what it allows the beast, which is Biden, to do is to declare national emergencies. Now, what this declaration by Biden of national emergencies does is it, it um, it avoids having to go through the traditional political model that even the Democrats used up until Obama. So under this new 
unchecked, an unbalanced constitutional system uh, wherein everything is now um, executive orders by the president, uh, Biden. He can declare national emergencies, as Henninger points out, on abortion, on climate, and a whole array of sweeping uh, presidential enactments that he can produce simply by his signature. And um, what Energer points out is that the post-2020 Democrat Party's theory of politics appears to have taken this new form and appears to be saying the system that this country was founded on, the system that uh, Mr. Yoho and I talked about yesterday, uh, no longer works, so blow up the system. And to blow up the system, you go to the streets. And when you go to the streets, why you create havoc, you get the uh, people to do what we just showed you. Uh, let's put that image one more time, please, production up there of, of AOC. Uh, this was a deliberate political theater move by hers, orchestrated and paid for by some PAC financed by Soros, uh, that I, as I've understood it. And um, she is doing this to make the point that, well, we got to abandon the Supreme Court. Uh, we've got to do uh, our own tactics, and we got to do it through something that produces publicity. So the media, and this is Henninger observing this, um, these tactics he alludes to right now, Representative Ocasio-Cortez's fake handcuffed pose. That's a fake pose there that you're looking at. But it's sustainable. That pose is the point that um, Henninger is making. The Democrat Party has decided that there's more emotional response in the public to staged images like this than there is to go through the tedious process of constitutional give and take, which is not such that it arouses the emotions of people. And so, therefore, just kick it out of the side of the road and start doing this. Um, so um, an article in the Washington Post, which is notoriously left, as you know, um, uh, says that um, college-age Democrats are pushing away from politics, including elections, and um, they are taking up the activist sort of behavior. So this way they avoid the progress of real politics, which is incremental. That's the word that Henninger used, incremental. And um, uh, they, they, they turn to street demo. It makes, this, this makes very good sense to me. The reason I'm sharing it with you, my students today, is this makes very good sense. Um, they, they've turned to street demo demonstrations. You see this with the AOC image. Uh, they have constant moral denunciations or threats of ostracism. Um, they'll create imagined offenses and play to the public through the media to dramatize them and repeat them through the various media outlets. They'll even resort to threats of marching in front of um, homes of Supreme Court justices or actually uh, trying to chase out of the restaurants, public officials, and make it uncomfortable for them. Um, and uh, they, they uh, pretend to, to uh, um, really, really care about the issues, 
But if they cared about the issues, they would let the issues go through uh, this uh, constitutional and congressional process that set up the country. So I've heard young people say such alarming things as, oh, well, I think the Declaration ought to be rewritten every 10 years or so. Without knowing what's in the Declaration, I'm sure, and not knowing uh, how that document compares to documents throughout the world that governments use to establish order and clarity in their interactions with people. Um, that's one of the really upsetting things, that if you, if you had gone through a studied experience with it and came to that conclusion, that'd be one thing. But if you haven't gone through a studied uh, experience with it and you just jump to that conclusion, it appears as if you have bought into, at least to me, uh, you people who do with this, um, the, the um, um, street activism as, a, as opposed to uh, real debate and, and, and negotiation. Now, one of the things that Soros is doing, and he's pretty clever, and we don't have a, I say we, the Republicans don't have a Soros um, who interferes at every level of government to influence uh, left outcomes. And one of the places that he's putting a lot of money right now Political action committees are the political action committees that pour money into campaigns. Both parties have them. Um, lots of times they can be kind of a, a difficult to determine who put the money in there. Um, now he is financing district attorney races. Um, traditionally, the uh, district attorney races are, are low-budget affairs. Uh, they, they mostly are not glamorous. Um, I'll give you an example. We got a district attorney here, Brian Kramer, who ran unopposed. Um, you know, just nobody stepped up to run against him. I don't think that'll be the case next time. But um, so it didn't cost much money to run to be the state attorney and, um, and not uh, uh, have an opponent and not have to spend much money. But in some of the cities where there are opponents, what Soros does is he puts hundreds of thousands of dollars into uh, through these PACs into these uh, campaigns, and uh, that becomes uh, he does it. And the Capital Research, an outfit called the Capital Research Center, uh, according to research I've got here that the journal has produced, is um, is where uh, they found out this uh, behavior, and uh, the the uh, uh, it has had a, it has had a backlash. Uh, citizens now are beginning to realize, and it's because of the dastardly crimes that are going on every day, even here in the shining city by the sea, uh, the Lake of the Stupids, and that's Gainesville. Uh, the crime here is beginning to alarm people. Uh, they're beginning to be kind of frightened by even going out in public as some kind of haphazard random act of violence will descend upon their tranquility, uh, which this is, they're entitled to. Um, so there may be a backlash to, uh, which is the study that everybody's taking a look at, we'll see in the fall elections, to we may be reaching the point of diminishing returns for the so-called progressive attorney who refuses to prosecute uh, any of the criminal activity and is uh, not a law and order kind of fellow uh, person, woman, but is an anti-police person. Um, and the kind of the bell, the, the, the canary in the mine shaft here has been San Francisco, where there's a recall uh, out there. 
um, it was a, um, a Soros had funded uh, a, a, a person out there, and um, that had backfired because people in San Francisco are beginning to be fed up with the um, crime that's all over the place. So um, we got a couple of minutes left. I wonder, production, can we play that latest latest song that we got? Have you got it anywhere handy? Um, um, that we played the other day and we faded out. It was um, about Biden and. Uh, um, can you put a finger on that? I'll give. Her. We can do that. Yeah, I, I'm, I got the signal to keep talking until she found. I love being here because we can communicate. It's a little more difficult when I'm in zooming and she's here and and uh, I'm at the, my studio at the Windy Hill Farm. But we're having fun here. If we can pull it up, we'll fade out to it. It's contributed to uh, us by some of the members of the research team. We're having some fun with it, and uh, um, I promised I'd give it a whirl once in a while. So whenever we find it, we'll, we'll cue it up and fade out to it. We've got a few minutes here. So there, is, uh, there, is, there are some things that these elections in the fall really, really make a difference. And one of the things that you don't have to worry about is there will be plenty of money pumped into it, uh, these elections, by Soros in various cities where he thinks there's a lot in the balance. Um, you know, that's just the way it's going to be. And um, at least people are on to it now, and there may be some uh, reaction at the uh, booth. Uh, so we've got it queued up, and uh, we've got about a minute or two left, and it takes about two minutes to hear it. And um, I'll be back in the, uh, in the uh, Windy Hill Farm tomorrow, and uh, we'll have our call in Friday. And um, appreciate you tuning in to the Lord Scott Files. I want to thank production for doing a great job. I want to thank Rosemary Diario for stopping by and being a fascinating interview. So when I get the high sign, I'll stop talking, and I'm going to stop talking. Here we go. He's a real nobleman, betrayed our people in Afghanistan, left billions in weapons to the Taliban. Does not Does what they tell him to Cares not one bit about me and you No woman, please listen Our nation is wondering How much longer must we deal with you so sad to boot them out will make us very Stand, don't let them bring down our cherished.